wrangling musicians can kind of be, you know, like corralling ducks or herding cats or whatever right. you want to say. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of like, you know, musicians and creative people are very independent people. Mm-hmm. And um, and they definitely have their, their kind of their, their circles and their communities. Uh, but the difficulty comes between, like, connecting those communities. How do we connect the hip-hop community and the metal community and the folk community and all these different things? The Portland 50 Podcast is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Additional support for the Portland 50 is provided by Zupan's Markets. Our guest this week is Jamie Mustard, a speaker and author with a brand new book that's out later this year called The Iconist. Uh, very interesting guy, and I do have to maybe put this disclaimer out. I've known Jamie for a lot of years. I was uh, hired as his sound engineer when he had a radio show over on Kink's sister station, KXL, back in 2012 that ran for, believe it or not, like four years. I, I was shocked by that. Uh, but Jamie is just one of those great guys that I've always known, and I felt the the work he's been doing and the conversation and talks that he's been doing here in town um, are super important and definitely uh, somebody who deserves to be on the Portland 50 as he shapes the way we think about blocks. And we'll find out what blocks means, uh, but maybe most important, we'll find out why things stand out and endure in the mind. That's what his book, The Iconist, is all about. So uh, super happy to have my friend Jamie Mustard on the Portland 50 this week. So, okay, so the, here's here's why this is an interesting conversation between Jamie Mustard and I. Normally, when you and I have been in a recording studio, it's been you as the host and me as the guy just pushing buttons and now the tables are completely turned. Normally, I would uh, be coming up with things to try to throw you off or put you off guard. And now, here I am sitting in front of you having no idea uh, what we're going to talk about. Yeah, I, I almost got the sense, if we go back in time, uh, Jamie Mustard is our guest. You did a show for, we had, it was about two and a half, three years almost? Four year Four run. years? It was that long? Four years. Over on our sister station, KXL, called Radioactive. And you were this uh, this uh, uh, host that I kind of got the sense of you lo- you like to bring guests in and kind of not necessarily spring stuff on them or have like kind of you know gotcha type journalism type stuff. You but you really kind of like to kind of zig when they thought you were going to zag. I think that when you're interviewing people, yeah, if you can come up with questions, don't do this to me, okay. But if you can come up with questions, <laughs> we'll see how it goes at the beginning that maybe a little too early uh, that are very impactful right you do two things one is you let the person you're interviewing know who i and i always go into an interview with reverence and respect for the person i would do very elaborate intros to make sure that people knew that i had reverence for the person sure oh yeah uh and then um you do two things when you do that if you come up with something aggressive in the beginning um, a, you let them know that you're there to talk about real things. You started off strong. Mm-hmm. And then B, it, I think it creates tension for those that are listening because they don't know what like, you're going to say. What is Jamie going to say next? Yeah. Yeah. You, you also did a thing that uh, I, I, your devotion to it was, was pretty solid. You would do actually a pre-interview before the actual interview. You would spend time talking to a lot of, not, not all of them, but a lot of the guests, you'd spend time 
talking with him. And I, my guess is you were just kind of getting a feel of where you could go in the conversation ahead of I th- time. I think so. I mean, you always run the risk if you do that of talking about things in a way that and then it's not natural or it doesn't yeah, yeah. come up. And every once yeah. in a while that would happen. I could tell you a story. I was, that happened to us one time in a way that drove me crazy mm-hmm. when you were in the room. Uh, but uh, but generally, I would be really careful with it. But I think 90% of interviewing is, um, if you know everything, if you immerse yourself in the person, um, then that's a big part of where you can go. If you know all about them, then you might find some weird thing in their past, something they've done, something interesting, something that is universal, that if you don't have that conversation or if you don't do that research, that you wouldn't know. Yeah. We, we fortunately, I didn't have to do the pre-interview with you because we, we go back. You were one of the first persons in Portland that I really got to know after I moved here in 2011. We started doing that show in 2012, I want to say. We? Yeah, it was probably I feel like 2012. We, was it 2012? Like early, early 2012. Yeah, like early 2012. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's possible maybe it was late 2011. It, it could have been. I mean, you were that, it was early, not, I mean, I moved here in 2009. Yeah. And, but I spent a lot of time alone in a room writing. So that was, I didn't, you know, I don't get a lot, of, I don't get out a lot. So right. you were one of the more important people that I met after feeling like I was new here. Well, uh, and we should we should clarify that you new to Portland, but Oregon. You've been a part of Oregon, like you. I have. Grew, I, I grew up here. I, went to school here. I I moved from the concrete streets of downtown Los Angeles to Eugene. Yeah. When I was twelve. Okay. And I went to Roosevelt Middle School in South Eugene. And I went to South Eugene High School. Okay. Yeah. And then so, from some from South Eugene High School. Did you go to London right away or did was what was in between? It was there? a long journey and we could talk about that a little bit in this interview. You know, I had a pretty rough childhood. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, when I say I came, I came from the concrete streets of LA, I'm being very literal. I mean, I, th- I just remember being 12 years old and just being jarred by the trees and the clouds and the rain and the green, just the green of it. It was almost overwhelming because yeah. back in those days, you know, there was a lot of droughts, you know? Right. And uh, so, you know, it could go a year sometimes in LA without raining. Sure. And it's kind of like a whiteout. It's like a, it's like a, a langer. It, it's, it, it, uh, it's a banal, uh, languorous existence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so to go from that to green clouds, rain of Eugene was pretty shocking. Um, but beautiful. And I would say, um, based on what I know about you, Jamie, is just in, j- aside from the environment, like the physical environment that you're in, coming from kind of your upbringing in Los Angeles, I, there were there were some times your your mother was an, is an artist, yeah, and was wasn't always there. Yeah, I mean, I was. I don't want to get too into too many. That's fine. Yeah, no, I mean, I you just say shut I'll, up. I'll, okay, I'll, no, I'll talk about it. Um, I was. I spent the first six or seven years of my life uh in more institutional environments away from my parents okay and uh in pretty abject poverty i mean we were poor in eugene yeah don't get me wrong but being poor in eugene was wealth uh compared to being poor in the belly of los angeles i mean you just yeah i I don't know how graphic you want me to get but just uh small places 
lots of, uh, you know, cockroaches and a lot of people, not a lot of space, uh, kind of, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, it, 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 uh, it kind of is appropriate to talk about in this interview in a little bit. Cause we're going to be talking about, I guess my book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, as a kid, as a mixed kid, a brown kid growing up in mostly Armenian and Hispanic neighborhoods, mm-hmm. um, I, I dealt, and just the way LA is with the sun and the concrete, I, and just the poverty, I felt very invisible yeah. as a child. And, uh, I had a lot of concern that I would remain that way. So I, it's pretty ironic that all these years later, I've written a book that based on science and psychology and primal laws that can teach anyone to stand out in any field. And what's so interesting about that court is I never put it together until the book was pretty much done. I never thought I was cure, you know, that I'd learn these things maybe in curing my own feelings of invisibility. Right. And, you know, I, I, I believe strongly that because of the digital world distracting us all the time, we're trying to talk to people that are constantly distracted. And that's what that makes us feel invisible. I call it dilution in the book. Mm-hmm. We become diluted because people are bombarded with so much, they have less time to look at us, whether it's professionally or personally, no matter what we do. So to that degree, you're, you're more and more invisible. And there's science to back this up, which we can get it, I can talk about. But um, so, yeah, it's just a very great irony that I never, I felt very invisible, but really didn't realize that my book is kind of an incure for invisibility in a world overloaded with content till it was done. I never put the two and two together. You, I think I heard in, in uh, one of the, the uh, conversations, or I don't want to call it a speech, but a discourse that you, you've given, you said there's so much content out there that we, we see none of it because there's so much. Yeah, um, there is. I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you a story. Can I just launch oh, yeah, into yeah. this? Yep. Um, there's a, there was a woman uh, in the late '90s named Linda Stone, mm-hmm. and she was doing research for Microsoft and Apple. And so, in, in 1998, she coined the term "continuous partial attention." Okay. This is the burgeoning days of the internet. We were just getting started. No social media. No Facebook. No Twitter. We were not all the mass advertising. Yeah. Okay. So she she coined this term continuous partial attention to describe how we were being bombarded with so much content that we were only partially paying attention. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's actual studies that show that the, that the decreased attention that you have by just having your phone in front of you and the slight bit of attention that you have because it's there in your eye, in your eye line yeah. actually lowers your IQ. Huh. So if you have millions and billions and billions of people, because you can go to African villages and they won't have running water, but people will have smartphones. Yeah. So if you go, when you have billions of people that are constantly being distracted and they're constantly being bombarded with all this messaging... What you have to say has a harder time cutting through. Sure. So our, our, our own voices become di- and I uh, become diluted, and that's what my book solves. I teach people based on some primal laws how to cut through everyone being distracted. 
Okay. That's the idea. All right. So before we move to the book, I do want to talk about you You moved to Eugene when you were 12. What, what brought you to Eugene? You had family there, right? My uncle lived there mm-hmm. and my cousins. Yeah. And uh, yeah, my mother was having some medical issues that kind of forced us out of Los Angeles. And uh, it was a great thing for me. I mean, I, I feel very connected to Oregon when my grandmother who was from the East Coast, retired, I don't know, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, she moved to Eugene to be near my cousins. Yeah. So a major reason I moved back to Oregon in 2009 was to be closer to her. Okay. But between all that time, uh, and I kind of hinted towards it, you went to uh, the London School of Economics. Yep. Um, you graduated from there. What was the catalyst for you saying, that's where I want to go to school? It's a really strange thing. How transparent can I be? Can I be transparent, Corey? Sure, 100%. Okay. I, I rarely went to school. I, I was a, re- a child of pretty extreme neglect. I rarely went to school growing up, and by the time I was going to Roosevelt Middle School and South, I was more like a, a better, practically warehousing myself. Mm-hmm. And I had so such a bad foundation. I was semi-literate that it was hard to do more than warehouse myself. I had no support. And I was still, even though we were living in Eugene, I was still dealing with poverty. Yeah. Um, So I, um, my grandmother had said to me, if you ever want to come to New York, you can stay at my house. And the cost of tuition is you have to be in school. Yeah. And I got to a point by the time I was about 18 or 19 where I thought if I don't, where I was semi-literate at 18 or 19 Mm -hmm. and, um, I probably could write, I could read and conceive, I was a good reader and I could had good conceptual understanding of a lot of things, but um, my writing level was probably at a second grade level, third Mm -hmm. grade level. Wow. And um, so she said you could come here, rent is being in school, and I had to get to a point of pretty extreme extreme desperation Mm -hmm. to take her up on that. Yeah. Um, but I got to that point where I thought if I don't take her up on that, I'm going to be doing manual labor for the rest of my life. Right. So I moved to New York and enrolled in community college. I took an economics 101 class at Westchester Community College um, in New York. Mm-hmm. And I, it was a really strange thing. It was like, the first time in my life ever, I just kind of understood something. Like they would put the graphs up and they put, they started explaining these concepts and it was one of these things that I just kind of instantly understood uh, for the, like, for the, like when maybe you hear somebody that's really good at playing an instrument and they didn't have to struggle long to learn it, they could just kind of pick it up and do it. Right. It was probably the only thing in my life that I understood instantly, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So I never had that much interest in it it just, I just kind of felt like, oh, I get this. I should maybe kind of pursue it a little bit. And then I, in about two and a half years, I went from Westchester Community College to getting into one of the best schools for economics in the world. Yeah. So there you go. Wow. In London. In London. I lived in London for three years. And um, it was, uh, I mean, I can say it was a surreal experience. I mean, in a lot of ways, my book is about the economics of attention. Right. So if everyone's got decreased, decreased attention and we're trying to communicate in a world of decreased attention, whether it's we're an, a painter, a musician, trying to write an email, 
a resume, a grant proposal, whatever we're doing, we we suffer from the people that we're ta- we're trying to talk to. Their attention is hijacked. I mean, let me give you a very concrete example of that when I'm talking about the a- economics of attention. Okay. Um, say you were applying for a job pre-internet 30, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. You'd look it up in the classifieds. You'd send in your resume, and maybe that job would get uh, fifty applicants, twenty applicants, a hundred applicants. Um, today, if you're submitting for a job on an online job board, you're maybe competing against a thousand resumes. Right. So the person that's looking through those resumes, they're distracted by just the digital deluge. Mm-hmm. And then there's just, they can't look at that that resume with the same level of concentration that they could look at a hundred or 50 or 10. Right. So it's just, and we can feel that. Millennials, what's really interesting when I do talks, because I do public talks, um, what, what's really interesting to me is millennials because they are the group or the population of people that have not known anything but that. Sure. And I always thought when I was working, doing my work, that they would not understand. Um, that would be the one group that maybe wouldn't understand what I do because they wouldn't understand what it was like before. Yeah. But they they respond more dramatically to my message than any other group. Why do you think that is? I think that they f- they feel invisible to some degree. I think they feel like they have a lot of anxiety about whether or not they're going to be able to express themselves in that kind of personal Maslow uh, um, hierarchy of needs, the, the personal expression it, through through in their lives in a way that they uh, will like. Sure. And I, 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 yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the way I translate what you just said and correct me if I'm wrong. Sure. If we go if we go back to the resume analogy, if I was a creative person and I was submitting actually a physical resume like we used to do, one of the things you used to do is you'd use colored fonts, you'd you'd make it look creative, you'd print it on like a different paper to make it stand out. Now, it's all submitted digitally. It just it, it is what it is. There's nothing there's nothing you can do creatively to it to make it stand out, but those for those millennials now where pretty much everybody has a smartphone they have all these apps that help them do super creative things that where a dummy like me can grab one of these things and make something look pretty cool how do you stand out beyond that when an app can do something really quickly and you know look pretty professional and nice well i do there, kind of yeah i mean that? i talk specifically to resumes in my book so if you read so and we can get into if you ask me to talk about how you could do that with a resume yeah. or a painting or a song sure I can explain that to you. So you can you can't do it necessarily the creative way that maybe you could do it before, but you right. there are visual things that you can do even with an electronic resume mm-hmm. that if there were a thousand resumes being submitted and you were following the primal laws in my book, the likelihood is that you would get the phone call. Okay. And um uh, based on primal laws, there's certain visual things that we look for that are based on how we like to take in information, how we perceive things that are primal that go back fit through 50,000 years of evolution. And when you understand what those things are, you can kind of bolster them up front and you can magnetize attention that way. I'm going to ask you that question. Okay. But I'm first, let's talk about the book because we've kind of referenced well, Can I say one more thing about yes. the job on, on this yeah, yeah. job thing? Yeah. There's some amazing statistics out there. And uh, one interesting statistic that's in the book is... I res- I basically show how many people do you think think it's possible to get a job on an online job board? You, Court Johnson. How many do you think people think that? Like percentage get- wise? Yeah. I b- how many people are optimistic that if they go on Monster, they're going to get a job? I think less than half. 
Yeah, it's about 30%. Okay. Okay. Uh, say there was a, a million jobs that were gotten in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, how, what, what percent? Okay, so thir- so about 30%, maybe a little less, think that you can get a job through an online job board. Right. What percentage of new hires do you actually think go through an online job board? Probably less. Less than 1%. Okay. So what that means is yeah. you've got, 25 to 30 percent of people that actually think it's possible when act when it from a from a gravity standpoint it just isn't those the numbers don't match yeah, yeah right so what my book explores it one of the things my book explores is what is it doing psychically to those people mm-hmm. they're applying for something they're going into a black hole they're not getting any response how is that affecting them on an emotional physical and spiritual level yeah right it's uh it's affecting them Oh, I, yeah, there's a mental consequence to sure. that. And that we're just talking about job boards, right? Or yeah. or trying to get a job. That applies to anything. We we all feel, we all kind of inherently know what, what makes my, my approach different in terms of the way I talk about the digital world is typically when people write books about this subject and they talk about it, they talk about it in relation to being distracted. Mm-hmm. I'm more interested in what is trying to communicate to a but to a bunch of people who are distracted and not really paying attention to me due to my ability to a get what I want in life and how is that affecting me um, psychologically sure yeah right. um, the book is called the iconist it's gonna be out this fall it's out the it's called the iconist the art and science of standing out mm-hmm. available for pre-order there we go on Target Barnes and Noble Amazon BAM and other fine retailers. They can do that right now. They can pre-order it right now. This is a, this is pretty exciting because I think for as long as I've known you, Jamie, this book has been in the works in various stages. I've been working with this idea um, for 12 or 13 years. Yeah. And I had the book kind of mapped out maybe at a good point four or five years ago. Yeah. But then, you know, you you're, I'm, also, I'm always testing and improving and learning new things and finding out better ways to communicate about my ideas and then you sign with different agents and you get shuffled around and it took time for it to kind of settle and I'm very happy with um, the publisher that's putting it out there and and uh, and every the way uh, the it's everything's kind of happening the way that it's supposed to well and I think it probably because of the subject matter your 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 whole process of writing the book kind of becomes part of the process of what the iconist is about I mean, I had this idea and the basic outline of the book before Facebook, Twitter, any of those things blew up. Yeah. So I thought I saw this as a massive problem before social media. Mm-hmm. And I could again, like if you you want, I can get into some of these statistics and numbers and things like that. But this was a huge problem in even the late 90s when Linda Stone was writing, you know, coined the term continuous partial attention. So, I mean, if you think about it, I think there was an estimate in the late 90s that we were being hit with about 7,000 advertising messages a day. Yeah. You compare that to 1950, it was probably about 250. Right. You couldn't process as a human being 1,000 if that's all you were putting your attention on. Right. So, what is the psychological effect of having uh, tens, maybe maybe it's up to ten to 15,000 now with social media and and online ads. Mm-hmm. So what is the effect of that? Well, I this is an example I give in my talks is, what if I threw a golf ball at you, Court? What would you do? I'd try to duck it. Or maybe you'd catch it. Unless I, I was looking for a golf ball. Yeah, if I let you know, Court, I'm throwing this golf ball. Yeah, okay. You'd maybe catch it. Sure. Okay. Or we could do a baseball. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. 
well, what if I threw 10,000 baseballs at you? What would you do? At a certain point, I just start ducking it and try to avoid it. Or I'd yeah. say, Jamie, I don't want to play anymore. Yeah. So that's, that's what I'm saying. I'm yeah. saying that we're being, we live in this really strange paradox where, where we're being bombarded with so much messaging that we're repulsed by it and we're kind of trying to push it away from us and spam it out inside our brains. Yeah. But at the same time, because we're using messenger, we're using text, we're using direct messages, direct messaging, we're reliant on all this micro-messaging. Right. So it's really schizophrenic. We're kind of pushing it out and relying on it at the same time. Sure. Yeah, but but we're pushing it out a lot more than we realize. Uh, in terms of pushing it pushing it to a, to the side, you mean? Meaning we're overwhelmed by it. Yeah. So we're kind of, at, this, at the same time that we're using it, we're also kind of cowering away from it, numb to it, inured mm-hmm. to it. We're not looking at it with the same level of concentration that we would have before we were getting 10,000 baseballs throw, thrown at us versus 250 baseballs sure. thrown at us. Okay. It, so, so part of the idea behind the iconist is those is as a person, as a company, as whatever somebody might be or who they're with. Is tr- trying to figure out a way to stand out amongst all of this. Absolutely, okay. that is, that is the entire point. In a world where everyone's distracted, yeah. how do you make sure that you're the one that gets noticed? That your resume is the one out of that thousand. Uh, that you're painting. If you're a talented artist, you know. We even if you're talented, people don't stop and look. How mm-hmm. do you get that people person to stop and look? And then what are the law, the primal laws that surround by why does something become iconic in the mind? Why does something become viral? So, A, you learn in the book is almost a manual. Um, why people stop, how to make people stop and look. Yeah. And then how to cause it to become uh, iconic in the mind. Sure. The Portland 50 podcast is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company. The legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. So I guess this would be a great place for us to go back to that question that you uh, that you said I should ask because mm-hmm. you could answer is if if somebody were submitting a resume in today's digital world, what things could they do to create that iconic moment that that to stand out? I'm glad you asked that, Court. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alley oop. Well, listen, there, there's a few things at play here. One is the size of your header. Mm-hmm. You need to. There's a thing in that everything that causes something to become become iconic in the mind is based off of a concept of a term that I've coined in my book called blocks. Yeah. A block is a very simplistic, overly large, repetitive statement, central image, and I can explain how it works sonically as well. Uh, But it's a a very simple statement that's overly large Mm -hmm. uh, that is repeated and causes it to cut through mass distraction. Okay. Okay. And... There's a lot of science in the book on this, but basically when you deal with something, an emotional simplicity, and you repeat it, uh, it, there's been studies that show that A, uh, people connect to it more. Yeah. And again, these studies are cited in the book, and they will stop, pay attention, and they'll remember it, they'll notice it, they'll appreciate it. It has a huge effect. If you connect a complicated thing like a resume to a repetitive statement that you put at the top of your website and you make it the top of your resume and you make it a little overly large sure um and then you repeat it throughout your resume um it has a very pleasing effect on the brain okay 
and it causes people to stop and pay attention. Yeah. I mean, a really obvious example of this would be to take uh, the speech by Martin Luther King. This mm-hmm. is a, a crude example, and I give very specific examples in terms of kind of uh, resumes or something that would work for a resume in the book. But yeah. um, that speech, uh, maybe the I Have a Dream speech is probably the most famous speech in human history. Mm-hmm. It is a very short speech of just over 1,600 words. Um, in that speech, um, I mean, I went to school in London. One of the things that shocked me is that even, I, I mean, kids from Africa, Asia, people know that speech all over the world. Yeah. Um, so if you, in that speech, he says the words, let freedom ring, 1,600 words. He, uh, Dr. King says the word, let freedom ring, or I have a dream approximately every 88 words. Okay. So it's because he's using this emotional phrase throughout the speech yeah. over and over and over again that I argue and I show um, I cite I cite uh, did I say shite because I did live in England yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that, that England I cite terms. I cite science that explains why this you know studies that show that this is a consistent thing yeah um, that is why it a we, we pay attention to the speech mm. it's why we remember the sentiment of the speech and it's why it's collectively the most powerful speech probably in in human history sure and i think uh you could probably look to uh president obama used very similar uh structure in some of his stuff yeah i mean i think repetitive phrasing that that you could yeah i mean listen there's a great thing about blocks and blocks all an icon is an icon of the mind is a block statement a block image a block sound Mm -hmm. repeated over and over again with deliberation at will so what that means is Normally, if something were to become iconic in your mind court, like Coke being right. the, the name for all sugared water, yeah. or Kleenex being for all tissues, Xerox. that's kind of an or, or Xerox. Band-Aid. Perfect. Yeah. That that's normally an organic thing that may or may not happen. Yeah. What blocks do, and blocks again is the core concept in the iconist, um, is they allow you, no matter what your form is, whether you're a painter, a designer, an architect, a scientist a professional trying to write a resume or just trying to get buy-in from your colleagues at work, a grant proposal. Mm-hmm. It allows you to get attention and have it be appreciated with the same power and momentum uh, that uh, of a speech uh, similar to way, uh, well, like Dr. Martin Luther King. I mean, it sounds uh, like a bold claim but it really is true. There's a there's a gravitational force occurring there. There's a process, a method, and you can use it and you can apply it to anything and it will work with the exact same power. And I can give you example after example after example. Well, you, you had kind of hinted towards it in terms of writing a hit song, just, you know, us being in the music business, me being in the music business, and you, you're working in, in the music business these days. We often talk about what's the hook of the song, the hook of the song. Okay, well, and that's, and that's if I'm re, if I'm understanding this right, that's the block of the song. There's a chapter in the book yeah. called Nursery Rhymes. Mm-hmm. There's an entire chapter completely dedicated to music. Yeah, where I explain, like, if you go on the website, um, one of the top things it says on in terms of the description copy of the book, mm-hmm. no matter where you go, whether you go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble, um, is one of the I think the first line up there that the publisher put up is. What does Beethoven have in common with Rage Against the Machine and Madonna? Mm-hmm. And the answer is blocks, yeah. the hook. Um, 
So basically in music, so in a concept, it's a short emotional phrase. And make sure before the end of this, I tell you how you can apply it to a resume, okay? okay. Because it's, I want to make sure that people don't think it's too big of a leap between I have a dream and a resume, because okay. it's not, all right? But say, let's talk about music, which there's an entire chapter dedicated to. Again, Beethoven, Rage Against the Machine, Madonna, right? So what I, what, what, what I explain in the book is that a block is a short, repetitive phrase. Mm-hmm. So in music, that would be a nursery rhyme type melody that you would instantly recognize, Billie Jean is not my girl, right? Right. Um, and then you, re- if, if the melody is strong, um, so, well, let me, get, let me even take it back to Beethoven. Da, 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 right? Mm-hmm. There's the same amount of notes in that phrase, and you can have counter melodies and riffs, but as there is in Like a Virgin, right? Sure. And if you create a nursery rhyme type melody, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, um, it, which is pretty much the same as ABCs. Right. Um, just Mozart. Yeah, exactly. Well, Mozart took it from a French song and yeah. kind of made it famous, but sure. it was from a French folk song that Mozart approximate, you know, he, he, uh, what's the word? He, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know he gave it, he paid homage and made it bigger than go. it would have ever been. Right, Let's right. say that. Yeah. Um, so if you use these nursery rhyme type melodies and they're more dominant in the song than the rest of the arrangement mm-hmm. and you repeat them which is pretty much the formula for every hip hop song oh right no it's, it, it causes it to invade and stick in your head yeah. it's shocking that even that's why they call it the hook because it grabs you by the shirt it hooks you yeah. and it pulls you in sure it doesn't give you a choice and this you can use that same power on your resume or that same power on a painting or that same power on a piece of architecture or visual design or industrial design, product design. So what, what is the example on the resume so that we don't get away from that? So if, um, the if, example on the resume is to understand who's going to be reading the resume, mm-hmm. understand what they care about and what they're looking for, mm-hmm. and then to create a transparent phrase that there's always an intersect point between, I don't know if it's a quote from, uh, there's a famous quote. I think it maybe it's Einstein where it says, your, vac- your, vo- your vocation lies at your greatest ability, I'm paraphrasing, your greatest ability uh, and the world's greatest need. Mm-hmm. So you figure out what who you're communicating to and what they care most about. And you figure out the best thing that you have to offer that corresponds with that. So it has to be transparent and it has to be true. And you create a simple phrase that represents that. And you put that as big as you can, overly large, even if it took up a fourth of the top of your resume or a fifth, Mm -hmm. and you say it overly large at the top of your resume, uh, if you, that that piece, that phrase that corresponds to your greatest ability and what the person you're trying to get to hire you is looking for, you will get that phone call. Okay. Yeah, and then especially if you repeat the phrase throughout your resume, so it kind of anchors like I have a dream, it anchors you to the more specific content. It also forces you to, to it forces you to connect all your specific content. So again, you know, it's hard for me to, f- to explain in a radio interview what is a 200-page book, right? right? Yeah. Uh, but, um, but, you know, you're getting, you're getting an idea. We're getting a little snapshot, and, and we mentioned this earlier. The, the book is out this fall. They can it's pre-order out this it now. On an amazing, innovative publisher... They published the China study. 
Uh, they publish, they're really smart guys uh, called Ben Bella Books. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and I really feel incredibly honored and proud that they chose my book because uh, they're just really an innovative and brilliant publisher. As you uh, go went through this process, Jamie, because it sounds as if there's pretty much not any uh, portion of somebody's life, business, or whatever, where you couldn't apply the blocks theory to some degree or another. You know, it's funny that you say that because when I before I sold my book to my publisher, I the publisher wanted to speak to me on the phone. I mean, yeah. we had multiple, we had a lot of offers. Yeah. Uh, typically, you're dealing with an acquisitions editor. Right. In this case, the guy, the publisher wanted to talk to me, which was, I think, the only publisher I spoke to, mm-hmm. and uh, that which was intimidating. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, he we talked, and he asked me about science, and uh, a lot of similar similarities to this conversation, actually. Yeah. Um, and one of the things he kept saying on the phone was it's tricky tricky mm-hmm. right and i didn't really know what he meant i turned the book uh i, I turned in the fi- i've approved the design and i turned in the the co- final copy edit a couple weeks ago yeah and i don't think until i finally turned the entire thing in that i understood what i what he meant and what i think he meant is exactly what you just said ultimately it's a business book right sure. so uh it's for professionals um but if you're a, an artist, you need to understand why people stop and look at one painting and ignore another. Right. Same thing for a song. Whether you're an artist or a musician or just somebody or somebody that just wants to get buy-in from their team yeah. or their boss, uh, you are a business person. You're a professional in, sure. in every way. So ultimately, it's it's a business book. But I think what he was, and didn't I, I kind of regretted not asking him what he meant by that, but I've come to the conclusion that what he meant was what you just said it's more there's a lot of crossover yeah um i think it's a book that that we could and should be in every art school in america every music school um in the sense that it will give it's it's a it's a tool for standing out so that one can do that if one desires it not everything is meant to stand out i like really obscure artists too i like Arthur Russell mm-hmm. and Philip Glass and and uh, well Philip Glass is, does movie scores now but say Arthur Russell and John Cage you're not going to hear them on Kink right so but the thing is that those guys know who know knew who they were mm-hmm. and they were trying to create something experimental and avant-garde and they knew that it might have a limited audience the problem is that there's so many musicians out there so many painters product designers architects that don't understand the primal laws of why people pay attention. So they're doing all this incredible work and because they don't understand these simple rules, mm-hmm. they don't under, they can't get people to pay attention to their work. And all I want to do is get people to understand why people pay attention or why they ignore so that they can make a choice and not be wondering why they're not getting the attention they deserve. Right. Um What's next for you? I mean, you've told me, me a little bit off- offline, like you've you've been you've had your head down. You've been working on this book for some time, and then you literally walked in and told me, "I got another book." Oh well, yeah. I mean, I'm. I just uh, I have a children's book that yeah. I uh, co-wrote with one of my collaborators. That's going to go to the marketplace in the next month. Mm-hmm. Um, with that, I co-wrote with a woman that uh, I've been working with for years. That uh, who is helps edit me and does re- she's just a big collaborator for me so it's a team of people that it takes to make really good stuff sure and so 
this we co-wrote together. Her name is uh, H. Shaw Thomas. Mm-hmm. And it's called The World is Out There. And it's a children's book about a, a talking lizard. Okay. Uh, and a boy that loves his devices so much that one day a talking lizard shows up. And he's so immersed in his devices that he's not even impressed that a lizard is talking to him. So this, there is a direct correlation with, with the iconist concept. And, yeah, and I mean, the, not not intentionally, but uh, but yeah, I, yeah. I guess I I, I, I mean, I had that idea, and we kind of started putting it together, and it, again, it was one of those cases where not until it was relatively shaped did yeah. I go, oh, this kind of fits in with the iconist yeah, yeah, yeah. message. Yeah. So um, yeah, I'm working on that, and I got I'm working on a few other projects. I'm working on an experimental kind of opera album mm-hmm. that in that involves like uh pitch down opera on acoustic guitar using kind of kurt cobain elliot smith type guitar riff so it, it's almost like alternative rock but it's opera sure you have to hear it yeah so i'm working on that and uh with some really cool people uh an artist named may arden and the viola player from Zola Jesus, her name is Louise Woodward, brilliantly trained classical violist who has a pickup on her viola and a pedal board. She is the Johnny Greenwood of viola. She plays uh, viola for Zola Jesus and some of the some really big artists all over the world. Hmm. And also, I've been lucky enough that uh, to have Zia McCabe in the band uh, playing bass synth. So I'm playing with these geniuses. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of helped shaping the sound with these geniuses and it's been pretty amazing. So I'm working on that. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I'm, I also have a large format art project that I'm working on, uh, giant paintings using my block signature. Oh, cool. Yeah. So and, I'm a busy guy. Next year you'll open up a restaurant. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. It'll, it'll call it blocks. Yeah. So I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, 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 yeah. So I got a, I got a lot going on. Wow, we've covered a lot in a sh- in a short amount of time. I think we we may have to bring you back in the fall for a secondary podcast. Jamie. I hope so. I hope we said enough that we whetted people's appetites because I want to say you know one thing before we end. Yeah. Ultimately, you know, when I started researching this 12, 13 years ago, I was just interested in it from a from a kind of Malcolm Gladwell pattern that I found. Sure. I wasn't trying to like trying to make the world better i was just trying to give people a device to cut through yeah uh what i found is that when people um use the concept in the book and they see that they can cut through it well no matter what they do whether they're a painter a grant proposal writer um a saw an artist it's amazing how many bands do not understand repetitive melody sure and they, they i've seen some of the most talented musicians in the world not use repetitive melody, and no one ever cares. That's why they call it the hook. So, so what, what, what was, what's amazing was I was just curious about the pattern and getting the pattern out there in a Gl- Malcolm Gladwell type sense. Uh, but what, I, what, what happened as a result was a surprise to me, and I've experienced this over the last 10 years, which is when someone can get the word out at will and they know that they, they can get the attention for the work that they desire or they want, it's completely altering. To, it alters who they are. It changes their personal outlook on life. And that, it makes them more optimistic. It makes them happier. It makes them, uh, it renews them as a person. So that has really become the surprising and ultimate reward of the book. And in that way, the book is a work of social change because it makes people more optimistic 
and uh, certain again. And you do that for a lot of people, and you're you're changing society. Yeah, certainly. Theiconist.org is the website. So uh, I'll, I'll put this in the body of the of this podcast, but that's where you can go. And if they Google the Iconist book, yeah, by Jamie, you know, just the Iconist book, it's available everywhere, and they can pre-order it. Pre-order it. Do it, Jamie. Thank you. Court, thank you. Yeah, of course. Okay, this wasn't as bad as I no, thought. This was this was great. Okay, I'll, I'll have harder questions next time. All right. Thank you for listening today. And in case you've missed any previous podcast, be sure to check out Kink.fm or download an episode wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, be sure to like and subscribe. The Portland 50 is a podcast about the people who dream, build, and champion the uniqueness of Portland, creating a better community for generations to come. It's presented weekly by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950.